All right, good morning. It's good to be out here with y'all again. Hope everybody is excited to be here. So, we've been, again, walking through the book of Ephesians and kind of continuing on this Radical Grace series. I know it's been, um, you know, sometimes it seems like it matches up. Sometimes it seems like it may be a different course. Um, I think it's to keep in mind, as we're going through this, the whole kind of emphasis, um, the background, the the thing that's holding this all up is the idea of how Christ, God the Father, through Christ, has radically changed us through his grace to make us who we are. Okay? So as we have kind of been walking through the book of Ephesians, we'll be looking at how we came to be who we are as a diverse, differing group of people coming together under one purpose in one person, Jesus Christ. And we talked about how he focused on that with the church at Ephesus and their differences and the um, racial differences with that church, the ethical differences with that church, the traditional differences with that church, just like we saw in Galatia, just like we see today. Okay, um, Something that we have tried to really hone in on is the beautiful differences that existed in these churches. Um, they didn't all look the same. They didn't all act the same. church at Corinth looked different from the church at Ephesus, which looked different from the church at Colossia, which looked different from the church at Galatia. They were centered and unified in Jesus Christ, but they were different. You had different people making them up. church at Jerusalem would have been 90% Jewish. The church at Galatia would have been 90% Gentile in the church at Ephesus as well. So you have this differing makeup, differing cultures, differing backgrounds in history. But they came together in Christ. And the beautiful thing about the radical grace that was affecting them was it changed these people, changed these Gentiles who didn't have a history like the Jews did, but brought them into the same narrative that the Jews had. And it changed the Jews from their history. You say, well, they had this history, this established lineage with God the Father and this you know, written out history of promises and traditions and things like that. And all of that actually worked in their negative in some cases. They took it, they abused it, they turned it into man-made, man-centric traditions instead of keeping the, the centricity of, or centrality of God. I mean, you, you see this in examples like with the brazen serpent that we brought up before. They took something that God orchestrated, God put into play, said, here, look at the brazen serpent, all those who are bitten by the, by the snakes, they'll live. You know, took that and you fast forward a few generations and then they're taking the serpent out and they're worshiping the brazen serpent. That was just their man kind of made way of doing things. Just like we can get off, just like we can take traditions and things that are good and right, things that you can tie back to the biblical example and things like that, and we can still take those and we can move them away from being centrally about Christ, move them more, be, uh, more towards being about ourselves, about our tradition, about our grouping or whatever, and they lose their power, their focus, and their meaning. 
So here you see the Jews being diverted back. You see the Gentiles being diverted in. You see all of these people coming together because of the radical grace that has changed them. Okay? So he's walked through the first chapter, and we got kind of to the end of it last time, and we spoke a lot about growing in the relationship with the Father, and that the inheritance that he speaks of that mentioned was mentioned a few verses before, that he's, he's not just wanting you to grow into theological or theoretical knowledge, okay? When Paul is praying for this, he doesn't want them to just have a better head knowledge, a better understanding from the point of view of, I can argue Scripture better, I can regurgitate verses better, I can, you know, I can have a good theoretical, theological foundation, a good doctrinal foundation, a good scholarly foundation, Paul was wanting them to have a greater, deeper relationship foundation with their father. That's what he wanted them to understand more, to dig deeper into. I think you can see plainly in our culture, in our time, at, at any point, you can tell people who have a good book theoretical knowledge about a subject. Okay? In fact, as you go through school, you may learn about something. You may learn about math principles, and then, like me, you can learn to forget them almost immediately. Okay? You learn them for the test, and then you unlearn them almost as quickly as you learn them. I jokingly will tell people at work in particular is like at, at four kids I have run out of memory okay so my RAM is shot in my brain I have no more so the only way that I can gain any more knowledge is to delete something else so I'm either losing a kid's birthday or I'm remembering that formula okay so that's why I rely heavily on on things that that help me uh, through that because otherwise somebody's got to make room. I don't have any more room. I literally will forget something to make room for something else and so you know that's just how this goes and that's that's kind of how you can tell with people in school they have a they got the theoretical knowledge they got the brain knowledge they learned the concept but then you have those people that are just like in love with the subject right okay so you have people who can teach English and then there's people who, like, love English, okay? And these are the people who, like, decorate their room with Romeo and Juliet or whatever, and they get, they're into it. They're into literature and English and all that. People that are that way with math. Still don't really have a concept for that, but there's people that are that way with that. They just love math, love numbers, love, you know, all these things. I watch movies like um, A Beautiful Mind, or I watch movies like, uh, um, well... The one about the women in NASA that I can't think of right now. Hidden figures. You see these people, these stories of real life people who can do these amazing things with math and they have a love for math and you're just like, that just, that has to be just one of those unique things that certain people really have because I know that's not in me and there's no way you could bake that in, okay? So there's people who have a love for subjects that is different from just having a head knowledge of a subject. Do we kind of understand that? Those people dig deeper into it. They're into more than just fundamentals. They're into theory. They're into all how it connects. And they can work it into life. And they can do so many amazing things with it because they have a passion and a love for it. Well, that's different 
and very similar to what we're talking about when we're talking about your relationship with Christ and the Father. You can have a lot of knowledge about it. The Pharisees, the religious teachers and leaders of Jesus' day had great knowledge about the Old Testament, about the Father, about history, about Moses and the law. And man, they really got drilled down on the law. I mean, they knew intricacies and minutia to it. But they did not have a love relationship with Jehovah. And that's why Christ looked at him and said, if you had loved Moses, you would have loved me. If you had loved the Father, you would have loved me because I came from the Father. I mean, he spun that out when he was talking to them. He said, yeah, you've got a lot of knowledge and you're teaching and you're doing all this stuff, but you aren't in a relationship with the person behind all that. And so that's why Paul wants them to grow. He knows they have faith. He's seen it exhibited. He founded this church. He knows their background, but there's three things that Paul prays for this church. He says, I pray that you have your eyes enlightened. And this is from chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. I pray that you have your eyes enlightened, that you may know the hope, that you may understand and grow in greater knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance, and that you may gain a greater understanding of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So Paul described how that power towards us, you know, that he goes into a little greater depth into, and he's actually, again, we talked about the chapter divisions. He's going to just go right in from the end of chapter 1 right into chapter 2. It's not divided there. So the power that he is kind of mentioning here and kind of briefing into, he's going to go into it and say, and here you go, this is how you see that power expressed intimately within us in the very beginning of our new creation, our radical change. But he says, I want you to understand this power. And the power that he's talking about, he doesn't leave kind of ambiguous for us and, and, and unknowable. He says, no, this is the power we're talking about. The power that is within you, that has worked in you, that radical grace power is the same power that raised Christ from the dead, which I think we would say is pretty powerful. Still no one has beaten that yet, okay? Raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that gave him all authority. As he says, he sit, sat him at the right hand in the heavenly places, which is the place of power, authority, and honor. You can go back into the uh, Psalms and in Isaiah and other places, and he will be making mention over and over again about how the, the writer in those scenes will talk about salvation coming from his right hand, power coming from his right hand, authority from his right hand. The right hand was the hand of honor, power, authority. So he says that same power that raised Christ from the dead also has turned over all authority to Christ, has put all things under his feet, and has given him to be the head of all things. And this was kind of what we were mentioning last time that you really can't understand your existence, your purpose, your function in life unless you fully comprehend your relationship with your Creator, okay? And again, on both sides, whether you're talking about people who are chosen, born-again children of God or condemned wicked sinners, either way, they were all created by God. They have a relationship to Him, 
okay? And ultimately, one day, that relationship's going to be completely parsed out. But that relationship is there. They were created by him. And whether they understand that they are rebellious sinners or understand that we are forgiven sons, wherever it comes in, we have to understand our relationship to our Father to be able to understand our purpose and existence here. Well, the same thing with Christ. Christ was placed over everything. He is ruler over everything. He is controller and omnipotent power over everything, and he upholds everything. That's what John tells us in his gospel. Everything was made by him, everything continues by him and in him and through him, and ultimately he is the all in all. So it says that that power raised Christ up and put him over everything. He was the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. Now he is given the authority over everything. So again, how does our relationship come in there? Well, we have to understand exactly where we come into this thing, where we exist in it. Number one, we all exist under the authority of Christ, and there's no one that escapes that, which means Christ is supreme, Christ is superior, Christ is our Lord. We submit to him. But... Also, he weaves us into this narrative as he's describing this. It says, but he has placed him over everything and has put everything under his feet and has given to him as head all things to the church. That's an important aspect to grab from that. He has not separated us from the greater narrative and the greater picture. We have a huge place in this. In fact, we're kind of part of the central theme of all of this. And all of these things he's describing here, the power and the inheritance and the grace, all these things, he's tying it back to us. This was all poured out on us. This was all done for us. And we are the ultimate embodiment of all these things. So when we start talking about, in, in, as we go through this, the purpose of the church, the existence of the church, we have to understand the church's relationship to the Creator. To understand its purpose and existence, you have to understand its relationship to the Creator. Well, where does Paul put the church in the story in the relationship with the Creator? He puts him in the central position, the church in the central position of this narrative. He says the church is the thing that the power has raised Christ from the dead, put him over all things, given him supremacy over all things, given him authority over all things, and made him the all in all for the church. This is what, this is what gives us, as the church, meaning. This is what we were talking about last time, that it's important for us to understand that we are doing everything in Christ or else we're not doing anything at all. Because ultimately Christ is the, the one. He's the one that has all the power. So where is the church going to turn to to find its power? Well, it's got to go in Christ. All things have been worked in Christ for the church. 
So where are we going to turn for anything? Well, we have to turn in Christ. Where are we going to find our purpose? Well, we find our purpose in our relationship to Christ. So again, he comes back and is locked in this narrative with Paul as the central figure and the whole reason why we exist. He's the reason why we exist and the reason why we exist and live and do and act and everything has to be back in him. So in this section, it's important for us to grasp that Paul is wanting this church to learn more. He wants them to go deeper, learn more about Christ, more about his mission, more about his glory, more about his position in everything. But he's also wanting us to learn more about the relationship. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the Son, Jesus Christ, and His role in all this. His supremacy over everything, and most importantly, how Jesus Christ the Son relates to us. And there is woven into all this, this connection of us, the possession the thing that was purchased, that was emancipated, that's given this inheritance as he opens up in the first verses. He closes it with describing us as the body that is tied in with the Father and the Son and the promises and the inheritance and the supremacy. There's no, it's not separated. Again, we're not looking at some kind of separate entity, deity figure separated from this you know, ant farm situation, this weaves us into it. Not only has Christ done all these things for us and redeemed us and delivered us, but then also we're kind of Him. He says we're His body. So we're all woven in there together. We're not separated from Him. He's not the idol on the corner that we're making sacrifices to. He is us and we are Him. But there are also three things in particular that, that Paul prays for the church that he, at Ephesus. He wants them to gain greater knowledge and understanding in. He says, I want you to gain knowledge and understanding in the hope, in the inheritance, and in the power. He says, these are important. These are the things. These are the central issues here that I want you to gain knowledge about. He's already kind of explained out each one of these individually, and he's tied in how the Jews and the Gentiles all weave into these individually, okay? But just looking at the hope, you know, the hope that he speaks of is the greater longing that we all share as believers in Christ. It is a desire, ultimately, it is a desire for change, it is a desire for change. I think that's, as, as you kind of look around at all of the issues that are going on now, that have gone on in the past, will go on in the future, it's all just, it just keeps cycling itself around. There's always something. I don't think we've ever gotten to a point where there's not always been something. I think the understanding clearly is that there will always be something that's going to continue to grind and grate and cause problems and issues and cause us to wail and sackcloth and ashes and everything else. There's always going to be something that is going to grate on our existence here as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Okay, There's our existence here in this world, 
our function in this world. We're hopefully always going to find that we are never settled in this place, that it's just not right. It's kind of like if you ever go into a home or a building or whatever, and if any of y'all are this way, if any of y'all have any amount of OCD, have you ever like noticed a door frame that's just not actually square? And you just, the whole time you're sitting there, you're going, I just can't get past the fact that that's not right, okay? I can't get past the fact that that's just a little bit off. The mirror's a little bit crooked. The picture's a little bit, I mean, there's, there's just so many things that we can observe in our own lives that we look at and we go, that's just a little bit off, and it just bugs me to death. We'll just look around. There's so many things in the world that we look around at and we go, man, that's just off. It's just not right. And guess what? What's funny is, is that as you poll the audience, you find that there's a lot of different things that bother a lot of different people. There's things that might not bother me at all that somebody else cannot let go. And, you know, you sit back and are like, man, you really just need to chill out. But then the very next week, you're losing your grits over something that somebody else is going, whoa, this guy has some issues. What I think as believers, what we find is the, the lot of offness that we see around the world, it grates on our soul, it bothers us. And again, there's so many different issues that different people, it really gets them going. But overall, what we find is an in general discontentment with the state of things as they are. So the hope that we have that has transcended through 2,000 years of history so far and is evident at every church that you see in the Bible, but also every church you see here, is that there's always this pervasive understanding of discontentment with how the world is and a desire for the change that is promised in Christ. We desire change within ourselves, for whatever the problems, issues, stumbling blocks, failures, whatever things that we can't seem to get over, get past, or the things in our lives that just continue to come back up and attack us and beat us down, we desire that change within ourselves and the hope that one day I'm going to quit all this. We have hope and a desire for change when we have illnesses and breakdowns and issues in our lives that we're like, man, this came out of nowhere, this has blindsided me, or I knew this was coming all along and I still can't get over it. All these things, we hope for change in that. We hope for change that one day these things will go away, they will be made new, we won't have to deal with them anymore. And then we hope for the big picture change. We hope for the worldwide, universe-wide, eternally-wide change that ultimately rights every wrong as it's described in Ezekiel and Isaiah and other places that every tear is dried, every you know, boo-boo is kissed, every hurt goes away. All these wrongs are righted. We hope for that change. We long for change. We long for deliverance. We long for peace. And without Christ, we long in vain and have no promise of deliverance. 
That's kind of what Paul is trying to stir them up about. I want you to grow in knowledge of these things. I want you to be conformed to these things. I want you to go deeper in these things. I want you to find your ultimate existence in all of these things because without Christ, without these things, we've got nothing. Without Christ, there is no hope of deliverance. Without Christ, there is no purpose. Without Christ, there is no promise. Without Christ, this is all just in vain. That's a sad state to be in. That's why in other places, Paul would say, if in this world alone we only had hope in Christ, we would be of all men miserable. We'd be the most miserable people in the world. Why? Because we have this problem where we can look around and see everything's off, not right angles. Everything's ajar. Everything's askew. Nothing is 100% correct. And man, we really just want that fixed, but it's not going to happen. You've got the knowledge and the understanding of all the wrongness with no promise for anything being made right. It's a hopeless situation. That's why Paul said that. We'd be of all men most miserable because we would know it all and have no recourse for change. So that longing within us for change is in vain without Christ and without Christ we succumb to the inevitability of non-existence and the changelessness of the situation we are in. So without Christ... We succumb to the inevitability of just non-existence and the changelessness of the situations we're in. We live in this world, nothing can ever change, and ultimately we die from this world and enter into just non-existence. Well, there's just not very hopeful, right? By the way, you're going to be miserable your entire life. This world will continue to be off and wrong and bad, and it's never going to get any better. And then one day you get the sweet relief of just not existing anymore. Well, that's awesome. You should put that on a Hallmark card. In fact, all of our funeral cards from now on will be, congratulations, you don't exist. That's pretty to the point. I mean, I I don't know how you sell cards that way, but not very hopeful. With us, we have a hope in Christ. Our hope in Christ is that there is change coming. There's change now. We shouldn't just look at it as a future thing that, you know, sometimes we get into this bad state of mind where it's like everything's bad. We just admit everything's bad. We throw our hands up in the air. We go lock ourselves in the closet and go, hey, one day all this is going to be made right and I'm going to hang out in the closet till we get there. But what you see is that this hope actually drives us and keeps us going to do more here in this world. Again, if that was the case, if that was the ultimate point of all this, then Christ would never have charged us with anything to do. But before he left, he said, number one, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort you. He's going to encourage you. He's going to give you strength and power and all these things to keep you going, to do the good works that are necessary. And I'm commanding you, go out, make disciples, baptize in my name, heal the sick, cure the ill, talk to the poor, preach the gospel. What would be the point of doing all that if Christ was really like, hey, guess what, guys, there's nothing else that can happen. Go lock yourselves in a closet, a commune, go hide in a cave, never come out. One day, boom, we'll rapture this whole thing up and be done. That's not what he told us. He 
said, you've got a purpose, you've got a mission. My mission is for you to be the salt and light of the earth. But Christ, salt and light in this earth, doesn't seem like it's going to have a lot of effect. Have you looked around and seen how bad the earth is? And Christ would say, yeah, of course I have. I lived here for 33 years, dum-dum, and I went through all this. I experienced all this. And I'm telling you that even in all this, I, Christ, healed the sick, preached to the poor, shared the gospel, helped people, fed people, delivered people, gave people hope. You're telling me that the man who was possessed with the legion of demons didn't have a new hope in life after Christ delivered him? Are you telling me that the man from the Gadarenes who had been his whole life tormented by these demons when Christ healed him didn't have a new hope on life? Of course they did. That guy went nuts for Jesus. I mean, after that, he was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to stay right here, right by you. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. Paul wrote on two occasions, one to the church at Thessalonica and one to Titus, about this hope and the perseverance in good works because of the hope we have in Christ. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope in our Lord Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, from all iniquity and purify us to himself as a special people zealous of good works. Notice that in both of these situations, Paul is highlighting their faith that is driving them through the hope to produce the good works that ultimately are having an effect in their communities, which is what Paul is writing about saying, I keep hearing all of these things that you continue to do. Paul did this when he was writing to the Ephesians. He says, I've heard of your faith. I'm in Rome. It's been two years. I'm under house arrest, but I've still, I'm hearing about your faith. Oh, what do you mean, Paul? Were they writing doctrinal dissertations and sending them up the river to show you how they argued Romans 8 and, and that's what you're talking about? No. said, I'm hearing of your works, of your love for all the saints. That's how Paul was describing their faith. Their faith in action. The action was good works. To who? To everyone. 
Here Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica and he's writing to Titus and he's encouraging in both ways saying, I've heard of all your good works you're doing and this is because Christ has died for you and it's because he's born you again and it's because you have been filled with faith and that faith is working out in good works and all of this is driven because y'all have a hope that there is a possibility of change. Not just the ultimate change that we're really hoping for, but the hope every day that today will be better, that my life will be different, that your life would be different, that your neighbor's life would be different, that this community's life would be different, that you as the salt will have some kind of an effect in the dish that you're thrown into today. And sometimes that gets real hard. Sometimes it gets real hard to believe in that, but that's why Paul says you need to dig dip deeper into the hope because hope is investing in something that you may not be able to see right now. It is investing in something, hopefully in the long term, that we will see fruit of. So the big picture point being that if we want to see change in these present situations in our lives, in our families' lives, our communities' lives, it's only going to come by Jesus Christ. By us, his people, driven through faith and a fanatical hope to see good works brought about in this world. The second thing that he talks about is the inheritance. And again, we mentioned this briefly. He's already mentioned it again briefly. He says, you who have believed in Jesus Christ have received the down payment, the little earnest money of your inheritance. You get to see a little piece of it. You've gained a portion of it while you are here now. Okay, Through belief, through faith, you have gained the Holy Spirit, which is part of the ultimate reality, the inheritance that we're going to ultimately become a part of eventually, okay, whenever that time may be. But the inheritance that he's spoken of, we tried to focus on it a little bit before, but definitely want to refocus on it, that he's not talking about some eventual cash payout someday, He's not just talking about someday you're going to look forward to when you get to put drapes up in your mansion or anything like that, okay? The inheritance as kind of I've come to think about it and understand it is an existence. It's a living. It's a being. It's being in Christ. It's being the culmination of everything we have hoped for. It's being in the relationship with the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit that we've only gotten a piece of while we're down here. Through the Holy Spirit, through belief, through faith, we get to enter into that relationship that ultimately one day we're going to know in perfection. We get to experience the Spirit and the Father and the Son and the change and the hope and the existence that He would have for us now. He's born us again. He's changed us. He's reworked our minds and our hearts. We live in a peace that we didn't have before. We live in a joy that we didn't have before. It's not perfect, 
We don't have it every day. There's a lot of days that we can get really off track because of everything that this world has to throw at us, but we can still come back to that little portion of our inheritance that Christ has promised to us. Paul wants the church to grow in that. He wants us to grow in that knowledge of that relationship. Because, look, you're never going to get any better in this world unless you are growing in relationship with your father. Things will continue on just like they are. Like we said, that's, that picture frame's still going to be off. You got two ways to deal with it. You can either give into it and be hopeless and lay in the floor and claw your face, or we can start gradually growing in our knowledge, growing in our relationship, getting deeper with our Father, with our Lord Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, we don't just see the problem. We can see the hope. We can see the good. We can see the rightness that's all around us, and it's on the other side of it. Things can knock us down, but we know it's not the end. Things can beat us up, but we know we can get back up. Things, I mean, this is the, the verse of we are all the day, we're beat up, we're cast down, we're thrown overboard, we're shipwrecked, we're all these things. We are cast down, but we are not destroyed. And why are we not destroyed? Because we have a hope that there's going to be a fix to all this, and ultimately, tomorrow the sun will rise, and Christ will give us another day. So he wants us to grow in the knowledge of this. And again, we mentioned this last time that that is getting deeper into the word of God. And again, like I said, that does not mean because ultimately our minds drift to the phrase that you're to study to show yourself approved. And we take that verse and again, we think of it as studying like we're breaking open our biology books and trying to really gain the deeper knowledge and mysteries and arguments about all these theological principles. And that's not what he was talking about. He says, I want you to be zealous in reading the word that God has written to you and I. He didn't write the Bible to theologians. He wrote them to his children who he purchased. He wrote them so his children can read them and learn of the love their father has for them. So the only way we can grow in relationship is to read what he has written to us to talk to Him through prayer, to walk with Him, invite Him into our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, to recognize His position in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And lastly, He focuses on the power. This power that He lists as the power that raised Christ from the dead, that's a regenerating power, okay? That is a power that, again, there's not really anything else in the world that has been able to do this. This is a very unique power. You can think of all the things that science has broken through and broken into. I know recently there's been articles about the fusion reactors that they're coming up with and how awesome and amazing these are going to be. So we have fission reactions that split the atom, you know, and that's how you get most nuclear power. But this is a fusion reaction that's kind of like what happens on the sun. And it's this awesome, 
powerful, you know, new way of creating energy that's supposed to have no nuclear waste and all this stuff because you're fusing atoms together and that reaction is like 10 times more powerful than splitting them apart and all this stuff. It's really neat, okay? It's neat, interesting stuff. That reaction right there still can't bring your grandpa or grandma up from the grave, okay? It's crazy. It's amazing. It'll be breakthrough technology if they ever micronize it and get it down to where it can be usable in small situations. Who knows? We may go Star Trek. We may go to galaxies far, far away. Who knows what could come from this power? I'll tell you what, though. It still will not get a dead person out of the grave. It still cannot regenerate human tissue. It cannot reanimate dead cells. So all power that would be encompassed in this, I mean, when you think about the sun, there's a lot of power there, right? There's a lot of heat. There's a lot, I mean, that thing can sling off solar flares that hit us and still knock out stuff on our earth, and we're pretty good ways away. Um, All that being said, still does not have the power to reanimate someone who has died. And what Paul is reminding them here is that I want you to understand more the power of God that is within you. The power that raised Christ up physically physically from the dead is promised to raise us up physically from the dead, but more importantly, it has already raised you up from the death you were in spiritually, which is really a bigger deal, okay? Paul, Ezekiel, I mean, Elijah, a couple other people have raised up dead bodies by this power of God. But only God has reborn someone who has died spiritually in sin and death. Only God is the one who has reversed the course of the fall that broke everything in the universe in perpetuity going back to the beginning. Only God has the power to do that. And that same power that has done that in us is still within us. It's still working in us. So he says, I want you to learn more about this power because the hope for change is made possible by the power that is in Christ. The power that raised him from the dead and put him over all things is in you in the church and you as individual believers, he's worked in you. The power that has changed you and changed you from death to life, changed Christ from death to life, is the power that makes the hope even possible. If we can look at ourselves and go, if God can change this, obviously there's nothing else in the world that stands in His way. So as hopeless as a situation may look, we can rely on the hope that, hey, God's already done some things that nobody else could do. So I don't think this political situation, I don't think this social situation, I don't think this economical situation, I don't think this cultural you know, deviancy or whatever it may be, the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the death, the whatever it may be, there's nothing that can measure back up with you were dead and now you've been made alive, okay? The inheritance that we long for that drives us, that, inherit, that promise of the inheritance, the relationship with the Father that we long for, it's made possible by the power of Christ. How did we gain this promise? How did we gain this inheritance? How will we ultimately gain the ability, the, 
the relational ability with the Father? Well, it's through the power of Christ. You know, Christ, when he was talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, he made the point, he says, no man can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's been born again. You must be born again to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be a change. This is not just a turning over a new leaf change. This is a radical grace revision change. You have been made new. Well, how did that happen? Well, it was by the power of God. It was by His sovereign, omnipotent power that took you who were dead, destroyed, broken, cut off, and remade you into a living, breathing soul with a connection back to His Creator. So this power that we will that will see all things made new, all things remade, all things brought into the will and design of God, we will see that. Ultimately, we will see everything be brought back into the will and design of God. But it's also about knowing more about this power, growing in our understanding of it that helps us to not feel so helpless in this present world. I think we, that's one of the things that we lose sight of. And again, it's very hard, especially again, I don't know, again, maybe it's just my hang-up or whatever, but as we're kind of bringing this to a close, you, there's, there's just times the way you get brought up, the way that you're trained in your jobs or whatever, that just kind of lock you into a, a view of situations that's hard to get out of. From a medical point of view, from all of my training, there's just things you look at and you go, you know, that's it, okay? You hear of someone who's been diagnosed with like stage three, stage four, you know, pancreatic cancer. You go, that's it. There's just no way around it. We aren't scientifically advanced enough. We haven't found the right, I mean, of all the cancers, that one's, that one's a bad one. And we look at it and we go, man, you, if you're diagnosed with that, we almost just kind of write you off in many cases because it's like, well, there's just there's not a lot we can do. And there's other things that come up like this. Other medical situations you look at and you go, there's no way that we're coming back from this. So there's times like with medical people, you're wired in that mindset and you just... It's really hard for you to get out of that mindset to go, there's, there's this whole Christ power thing that you're not thinking about. When you think about your situations in life and your families or whatever, there's people who, you know, let's say just for a, a less, I guess you could say, a less uh, depressing, uh, traumatic thing like talking about medical problems gone wrong or, you know, weird stories from the ER, getting off of that story... You know, there's people who say, well, my granddaddy was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. There's no way around it. I can't escape it. It's in my genes. It's just who I am. I cannot get out of this. I will always be this way. And again, we're just, we're forgetting that there's this power thing up here that can change that. I've always struggled with whatever it may be. Insert your problem here. 
my daddy's done it, my mama's done it, I come from a long family, I come from a broken home, I come from an abusive situation, I come from, I come from, I come from, I come from a long lineage of addiction or issues. Well, you know, the reality is we all come from a long lineage of addiction and issues. Maybe your past three, you know, generations were saints, okay? But I'm sure that if we had a long enough family tree, I can drag up a lot of stuff. It's probably why my family tree stops at a certain point, because they were just like, eh, just need to cut that one off. If we start going back too far, we're going to really get into some deep history here we need to avoid. Th there's a long lineage. We all have a long lineage of problems. If that was the excuse that got us all, then guess what? We would be of all men most miserable. There would be no hope. We just look around and say, well, we're shot. I mean, we're like 3,000th generation down from this thing. I mean, there's no way we're getting out of this. And if chaos theory prevails, we're just getting worse. Every time you spin off, you break off again, you get another. I mean, it just, there's no way. There's no improving. It doesn't just spontaneously get better. We just keep breaking up and breaking up and breaking up and blowing up and all this. I mean, that's just how this goes. It's kind of like when you dump out a Lego box. It never puts itself together. It scatters to the four winds, and then you step on it in the middle of the night, and then you understand what is the fallen nature of humankind. So, but that's, this is how the world goes. But we have a power in Christ that we turn back to when we go, no, but look at this situation. Yeah, look at your lineage, but look at how Christ made this new. Look at this political issue. Look how Christ made this new. Look how this country went. Look how he made this new. Look how this medical problem, look how he made this new. Look how the power over all of human history has continued to cycle again and again and again and again and again and show us that everything in the created order that we think is so fixed can be completely overturned by Christ. Everything in our lives, every struggle, every issue can be completely turned over by Christ. And then he closes with talking about us being his body. And it's important for us to grab that because this is where the purpose comes into play. We are all individuals. We all have struggles. We all have problems. We've all been made new. We've all believed in Jesus Christ. We all have these professions. But we are a corporate unit. We come together as the body of Christ. We are built up to him. He has done all things for us as the church. The Father has given it all to us in Christ. So another reason why we're focused on that saying that it's in Christ and not through Christ because we are his representation as his body here in this world. It is in Christ that we can find our existence as the body and the recipients of all things. And it is only in Christ, in Christ alone, that we find ourselves full. He uses that phrase there that he is the fullness of him that fills all in all. Christ is the filling. He fills all and is in all, which means he fills all that we are, but then he is also in all that we are. And we can only find our fullness in Christ. Not denominations, not creeds, not theological camps, Within our local congregation or on a larger scale, our identity and purpose has to go back to 
Christ and Christ alone. In Christ, we have the power. In Christ, we have the inheritance. In Christ, we have the hope. And it is in Christ that we as the church have a purpose. So hopefully as we continue to go forward in this, we're going to see how he, again, keeps bringing people back to the table and showing how we are all in Christ, coming from different backgrounds, but also he's going to start moving towards, and this is how we as the church move forward in action as his body. So may God bless us to work on this.